0: Welcome to another episode of the BayCare Clinic Podcast. My name is Alicia Schertz. I'll be your host for this episode. It's estimated that some 21 million Americans suffer from obstructive sleep apnea. Globally, sleep apnea and excessive snoring affects nearly 1 billion people. I'm joined today by Dr. Robert Sonnenberg, otolaryngologist with BayCare Clinic Ear, Nose, and Throat. Dr. Sonnenberg is double board certified by the American Board of Otolaryngology in otolaryngology and sleep medicine. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Sonnenberg.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: So we're talking today about sleep disorders, particularly obstructive sleep apnea, but how big of a problem is this for people?
1: Obstructive sleep apnea is a, a very big problem for people. As you mentioned, um, it's a common problem. Uh, 21 million Americans uh, are estimated to be affected by this, and so it's, it's quite a widespread problem. Uh, it's also a significant problem for people because of the effects of having obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, having obstructive sleep apnea can have significant effects on your daytime functioning. It's quite common for people who have obstructive sleep apnea to feel excessively sleepy during the day, to have difficulty with concentration, focus, attention, uh, which can then spill over into their work performance and, uh, and life. And then finally, the other significant problem having obstructive sleep apnea poses for people is that uh, it significantly increases your risk of certain cardiovascular problems. It increases your risk of heart attack. Uh, there's an increased risk of heart failure, an irregular heart rhythm called atrial fibrillation, and an increased risk of high blood pressure.
0: And we're talking about you know 21 million Americans. Are there people who are more at risk or do you see this happening in in certain people or is it kind of all across the board?
1: Well, all across the board um, uh, and anybody can be at risk of it. There are certainly certain features, um, certain clinical characteristics that put people at higher risk of having obstructive sleep apnea. There's an association with male gender, uh, uh, people who are overweight, Um, are at higher risk, there are certain other clinical features that that put people at higher risk but something that can really affect anyone uh, men or women and people across the entire age spectrum.
0: Interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about snoring because snoring is sometimes a pretty good indicator that someone is having sleep issues. Can you talk about snoring and, and what problems you see sort of causing that causing your patients?
1: Sure, snoring, um, snoring is one of the more common things that people will end up in my office to talk about and uh, generally when I see people who come in with a complaint of snoring, I, I put them in two categories, either one, people that I think snoring is the predominant problem and two, uh, people who I think that snoring is a symptom of a more serious problem having obstructive sleep apnea. Snoring in and of itself uh, can be a significant problem, particularly um, for couples. Uh, you know, snoring's really common. O- almost anybody will snore at some point in their life. If that's just because you have a cold, or maybe you went out to dinner and had a couple glasses of wine, and uh, that kind of snoring that happens once in a while and isn't that disruptive is is not really a problem. It's more of an inconvenience. Habitual snoring, on the other hand, it is also a pretty common problem. If you look at people aged between 30 and 60 years of age, over 40% of men and just under a third of women uh, will snore regularly. And um, when that's happening, uh, it often will disrupt uh, the sleep of your bed partner. And Because of that, I see people with complaints that now they've had to move into separate bedrooms Mm or uh, just frustration with their inability to get a good night's sleep because of their spouse and so really it can lead to some relationship problems Mm -hmm. uh, that that frequently people come in to talk about. For the snorers, they also a lot of times have problems with the dry mouth or sore throat uh, when they wake up in the morning from the snoring that's going on.
0: So as far as treatment options for snoring, you mentioned those two categories that you kind of put people in. If it is just that, you know, kind of basic snoring problem, what are what are some of the solutions that you recommend for, for
1: patients? Sure, some, some real practical things that I see people commonly doing, especially if it's not an every night snoring problem, it is sleeping in different bedrooms or... You know, if you have somebody who has a tendency to snore when they have a cold or uh, after you go out to dinner and have a, a drink or two then maybe that person sleeps in a in a separate room for a night or two um, I've seen lots of couples who the the partner who's not snoring the one who's being uh, disturbed by the snoring will Sometimes that's something that allows them to continue to sleep in the same, uh, same room and makes things a little bit more tolerable. Certainly um, avoiding sleeping on your back, sleeping with uh, the head of the bed elevated. Um, there are some pillows and mattresses on the market out there that, that people find useful. Um, those would again be things that uh, people can do uh, on their own. Because nasal obstruction commonly is associated with snoring, there are medical treatments for nasal obstruction, things that um, are meant to treat a stuffy nose, like nasal steroid sprays, decongestants, um, those breathe-right strips uh, that you can buy right over the counter and uh, those are some things that uh, can be helpful for people. Uh, An oral appliance that's made by a dentist or oral surgeon that... Uh, moves the lower jaw forward, that helps to put tension between the, mu- on the muscles between the jaw and the back of the throat. Mm-hmm. That's uh, something also can be really effective for simple
0: snoring. So you had mentioned that um, you kind of put people into two categories. So how do you know, or maybe even how do patients know, that, that maybe their snoring is an indication of something a little bit more serious and perhaps it is related to a sleep disorder or potentially obstructive sleep apnea?
1: Yeah, it it uh, it can be a challenge for patients to know. Um, you know, it's uh, for for me to know. I look at certain patient characteristics that put people at higher risk, and if I feel they are in a, a risk category that um, substantiates it, we'll obtain a sleep study. Um, there is a real simple. Uh, questionnaire that people can use at home. This is a questionnaire that was developed by anesthesiologists to ask patients uh, who are undergoing surgery um, who they suspected might have obstructive sleep apnea to help put them into a certain re- risk category and that's called the Stop Pain Questionnaire. And so each of those stands for something. The S stands for snoring. The T stands for tired. The O stands for undeserved apnea. The P stands for high blood pressure, the B stands for body mass index, the A stands for age, N is for neck, circumference, and G is for gender. And so you could just at home go through this either for yourself or your spouse and say, "Um, do they snore? Do they say they feel tired at night? Do you ever see them stop breathing at night? Have they been diagnosed with or are they being treated for high blood pressure? Uh, do they have a body mass index of 35 or higher? Now, that's one you would you have to Google body mass index calculator and put your height and weight in there and see if the result's 35 or higher, then you would get uh, get a point for that. Um, age patients who are 50 or older are at higher risk. Neck circumference uh, men who have a neck circumference or a shirt size of 17 or higher, and women 16 or higher. And then gender is, if you're male, you're at higher risk than female. Sorry guys, that's one you just got for that. So it, <laughs> if, you, uh, if you take that questionnaire, do that questionnaire and you, and you say yes to four or more of those, then that would be somebody who'd be considered at higher risk for having obstructive sleep apnea. That would commonly be a person in my office that uh, I'd consider having them undergo a sleep study.
0: Specifically then, I mean, you just talked about sort of the next steps. If that's where they start, what happens, um, you know, once they come to you? What, what's the next step as far as what you
1: yeah. provide? So if we think that uh, based on their clinical characteristics, there's a, a risk that they do have obstructive sleep apnea, typically a person would then undergo a sleep study to confirm that. There's two types of sleep studies. Um, there are home sleep studies and in-lab sleep studies. And there are reasons to do one or the other. Typically, if we have an individual who is otherwise relatively healthy and uh, we have a high suspicion that obstructive sleep apnea is is present, we'll often do a home study. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a little bit less expensive, a little bit more convenient for people and you're, you're sleeping in your normal environment. You're in your own bed. You're going to sleep at your usual time. In other people, we will do an in lab sleep study. Now, sometimes I do an in lab sleep study if I I really think somebody has obstructive sleep apnea and they have a home test that doesn't confirm that. Um, The the in lab study can pick up some milder forms of obstructive sleep apnea that a home study might not. Commonly, I'll also do an in lab study if I have somebody who has a significant heart history or significant lung disease, so someone who has heart failure or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. Uh, we also will often do them if people have neurologic diseases, like a history of seizures, um, or we're looking for a sleep disorder other than obstructive sleep apnea, there's some additional information that we can get from the in lab studies.
0: If we move into sort of the treatment options, they've done the sleep study, it's confirmed that they have obstructive sleep apnea. I know that you're one of the only providers in the region to offer sort of a new alternative treatment option for patients with sleep apnea. Can you describe what that new treatment is and how it works?
1: Sure, that, that's correct. Um, I do offer people uh, a relatively new procedure, something that's called hypoglossal nerve stimulation. Uh, that is a treatment that was FDA approved in 2014. Uh, So, it's been about out there about five to six years in regular clinical practice. Um, And the idea with the hypoglossal nerve stimulator is that when people go to sleep at night, people who have obstructive sleep apnea, the muscle tone in their upper airway decreases too much. It allows the uh, upper airway to collapse during sleep when they're making an effort to take a breath in. And um, the hypoglossal nerve stimulator treatment, what that does is it stimulates uh, the nerve that moves your tongue forward and it coordinates it with your breathing so that when you take a breath in, it stiffens the muscles of the tongue and moves the tongue forward, reestablishing that upper airway muscle tone that helps to keep the airway open.
0: So how is this different than than maybe traditional ways that people might be more familiar with?
1: It depends on the other traditional methods of treatment. Um, You know, the the standard treatment for obstructive sleep apnea is use of a CPAP machine. CPAP means continuous positive airway pressure. And that's a machine with a mask that puts a positive pressure um, in your upper airway to help stent or uh, keep the tissues from collapsing by by blowing air or putting a pressure there to splint the airway open. Um, and that's a very effective treatment. Um, it's a treatment that uh, has significant benefits. It's been shown to help lower people's heart risk. Most people who use CPAP will feel like their sleep is better. However, it is a treatment that not everybody can tolerate or get used to. Um, there's other surgical treatment options uh, for obstructive sleep apnea, sometimes when people come in if they have uh, an obvious problem in their upper airway like very large tonsils, uh, we might do surgery to cut out or remove the tensile. Um The difference in the hypoglossal nerve stimulation uh, versus more traditional surgery is that This hypoglossal nerve stimulation is the only one that really addresses the muscle tone problem. So, in people who have obstructive sleep apnea and large tonsils, removing the tonsils makes the airway larger, but it doesn't reestablish the muscle tone that people lose when they fall asleep. Sometimes both are important. Sometimes if you have really large tonsils and you're having this decreased muscle tone, taking the tonsils out and then doing a treatment like this is what people need to get uh, uh, adequate results.
0: So, so with the new innovative treatment, though, it, that's actually a surgery as well. Can you describe a little bit more about how the surgery works and, you know, that that treatment?
1: Sure. Um, that's correct. That is a surgery as well uh, to do the hypoglossal nerve stimulation. That device is um, made by a company called Inspire. So sometimes patients will hear about it. Inspire implant, and that's what we're talking about with this. The surgery to do it is an outpatient surgery. So people come in that day, go home later that day, I make three incisions, one underneath their jaw. That allows me to find the nerve that goes to the tongue, one in their right upper chest. That's where I put the actual implant and then one on their right side between their ribs. Surgery typically takes about three to four hours. Patients go home that same day. We do ask that they don't do any heavy lifting or strenuous exercise for two weeks after surgery can go back to work as early as the following week if they feel up to it. After they're implanted, uh, we wait approximately a month uh, for everything to heal and then they come to my office and we activate the device. Uh, Once the device is activated, they have a remote controller that's about the size of a computer mouse that allows them to turn the device on or off. Their spouse also can turn it on or off if they fall asleep and start snoring and their spouse hears them, they're able to activate the device.
0: So, I mean, they're really in control of the technology that way.
1: They are. They are. And one of the things um, about the device that they can do is that when we we set uh, the stimulation level in the sleep lab, they'll sleep with the device on and activate it so we can see what stimulation level they need to keep uh, the airway open, however, we do put a range on it. So, if they notice that... Um, they're having some discomfort in their tongue or they're waking up at night uh, when their tongue's moving, they're able to decrease the level of stimulation within a certain range. Additionally, let's say that they have a night where they're really tired or again, they went out to dinner and they had a, a glass of wine and their spouse notices, huh, they're still having some snoring even though their device is activated, they can actually increase the stimulation level and uh, turn it back down when whatever that temporary situation has resolved.
0: Very interesting. So I know, just from a, a patient standpoint, this this surgery or this device is not for everybody. Can you elaborate on on who might be able to take advantage of, of some of this procedure?
1: Yeah, that's right. It, um, there are fairly strict criteria in who would be candidates um, for this device and. Uh, Those criteria are it's only FDA approved for adults 22 years um, or older, only for people who have moderate to severe sleep apnea and um, that's something that we quantify with numbers from their sleep study. Um, It's for people who have tried CPAP and been unable to tolerate it. So this is an important thing that I talk to patients about. There are significant advantages to hypoglossal nerve stimulation, but it is not something that's been shown to be better than CPAP Mm -hmm. in terms of being able to lower people's apnea, hypopnea index and so it's something that people really should try CPAP first because even though getting used to CPAP or being able to tolerate it, not everyone can do it. There are really a lot of significant benefits of CPAP and there you don't it don't have to go through the risks of surgery, and it's something people really should try first and if they're able to tolerate it, I encourage them to stick with that as their treatment because it, it is a very effective treatment. In addition to the CPAP issue, it, it also matters what the pattern of collapse in the person's upper airway is. Um, people who have a front to back, Pattern of collapse where the soft tissues and the tongue is falling from front to back tend to do better with uh, hypoglossal nerve stimulation because it's moving the tongue forward and opening it in the direction that the airway is collapsing. People who have concentric collapse, it's collapsing in from outside, have not been shown to do as well with. nerve stimulator
0: and so this is all something that you would obviously evaluate and whether or not somebody would be a good candidate but what if somebody using CPAP wants to kind of move in that direction to possibly try something like inspire if CPAP isn't
1: right for well that that's a common scenario there there are quite a few people come to see me who say hey I've been diagnosed with sleep apnea I'm using the CPAP machine I don't love it but I can I can wear it if I have to but uh. I'm interested in what else is out there, and in those patients, I, I ask them to really strongly consider what their reason is for change. You know, for people who um, are able to tolerate it uh, but don't really love it, um, I, I really encourage those people to try to stick with the CPAP machine. Uh, again, CPAP's been along, uh, been around since the early 1980s and there's a lot of data, a lot of information indicating it's effectiveness um, and there are no risks of surgery. Um, there, there's a lot of positives in the CPAP uh, category for treatment. And then, so, so some people are, are those people who come in and just say, yeah, I don't know. I don't love it. Is there something better out there? Um, and, and those people I generally recommend they stick with CPAP and then there are some people who use it. But they are really struggling with it. They they come in and they say, Boy, I was diagnosed with sleep apnea five years ago and I use CPAP, I'll use it for two nights and then I won't use it for a while, or I'll use it for two weeks, and then I won't use it for three weeks and and they're really they're really inconsistently using it. Um, And those are people who I do think are are still candidates to consider alternative treatments like hypoglossal nerve stimulation.
0: So if somebody comes to you, do they need a referral or I mean, how does insurance work with something like this? Is it covered?
1: Good question. So insurance, it's still insurance uh, company dependent. Um, In the couple years that we've started our Inspire program. Um, we've seen a pretty dramatic increase in the number of uh, insurance companies that are covering the procedure, but not all do. Um, in some, com- some, some companies, they're covered. They have a written policy about it. And still a lot of companies, it's a case-by-case basis and that's something that we would work with your insurance company to help determine. Um, people don't necessarily need a referral to come and see me about this, though many people do because they've already seen either their family doctor and talked about it or they've already established care with another sleep physician and um, have been trying, you know, to, to get acclimated to CPAP and unsuccessful. But really, it, it starts out with just having an appointment where we can look at what's been done so far and what have they tried and what are their characteristics that this might be something that would be worth considering.
0: Well, that's very interesting. I know there's a lot of information on our website about uh, this new therapy that people can take advantage of. If someone isn't sleeping well or thinks they might be suffering from a sleep disorder, what steps do you recommend? What are are their first steps as far as tackling that?
1: Good question. I, I think first steps for somebody who is not sleeping well Um, I think it's really useful uh, when patients come in to see me or if they were to go in and see their family doctor to talk about a sleep complaint, would be for them to keep uh, a sleep diary for two weeks and that can be just a paper diary where they write down, well, tonight, you know, Monday night I went to bed around 9 o'clock, it took me a half hour to fall asleep, I woke up two times and was up in the morning at this time. Um, or there's some wearable technology that people can uh, purchase that now can also give them an estimate of what their sleep time and what their sleep quality is, and and to gather a little bit of that information together, and uh, and then go and talk to it with either their family physician or a sleep physician, um, and just say, hey, here's my here's my pr- problem, you know, what's what's bothering me. And uh, here's some information I gathered about the last couple weeks and let's talk about it. I also think if you do that, it is really helpful to bring a bed partner with. If you're um, not sleeping alone, uh, it, it, you have another kind of witness to the crime, somebody who can say, yes, yeah, this is true. This is what I'm seeing. Or in addition to that, here's something they may not even be aware of that's happening very common with obstructive sleep apnea that the person who is suffering from it um, is the last one to know. They, they, uh, they might notice, yeah, I feel kind of tired, I don't know, maybe I'm working too hard, but they don't know that they're snoring. they don't know that they're stopping breathing at night because they're not conscious of it when it's actually occurring, so keeping some information for uh, about what's going on with their sleep. Um, talking to their family or sleep physician, and bringing their bed partner with them are the steps I would take.
0: Great. Well, this is very helpful information. Thank you so much for spending some time today with us. Dr. Sonnenberg is an otolaryngologist with BayCare Clinic Ear, Nose, and Throat. To request an appointment or to learn more about this treatment or other treatments available at BayCare Clinic Ear, Nose, and Throat, visit baycare.net. Thank you all so much for listening.